So if you guys don't know me, uh, my name is James. Um, I'm one of the many volunteers here at Courage. Uh, and today we're going to be continuing our series, All the Broken Pieces. So if you haven't been here, <coughs> um, basically the point of the series has been looking at trauma and different ways that we deal with it. Uh, last week we dealt with how we deal with trauma. The week before that we kind of looked at some of the causes of trauma in our lives. And today, we're going to kind of be continuing that thought process. Um, but we're going to be looking at one specific type of trauma. And that's going to be intergenerational trauma. So this is a kind of a strange word. I learned it was something about a week ago when my wife, who's a psychologist, used it. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, basically, intergenerational trauma is exactly what it looks like. It's trauma that passes down from one generation to the next, usually in a family, but it can be in any group setting, any community. Another way to define intergenerational trauma is a traumatic event that begins years prior to your own life and continues down into you. Um, there's a lot of science behind it about how our biology changes from trauma that this can happen before we're actually born. This is in utero trauma. Um, really simple terms. The trauma that your grandparents experienced is most likely the same trauma your parents experienced, which is most likely the trauma you've experienced. And we're going to kind of look at that. Um, and this isn't a new thought. Uh, there's not a lot of new thoughts in the world. Um, the Bible takes a look at this thought process, and I think today I really want to just look over that and how this can still affect us today and how these words speak to us today. Uh, if you have your Bible, if you want to open up to Ezekiel 18, uh, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to me, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Um, God, we just thank you for today. God, we just thank you for your word that's just so alive that it can speak to us so many thousands of years later. Um, I pray that you would just be in us and that you would show us the broken places in our lives so that we can see where you need to heal us. Amen. Um, so when we look at this verse, there's kind of a few th questions that should come to mind. Uh, the first one is, what does it mean? Um, it uses a very weird proverb. Um, and why in it does God seem so upset that people are using this, a proverb, just a saying? Why is God saying that the saying isn't going to be said anymore? Um, And to get into that, we need to look more into the history of this verse. Um, we need to get into the history of really the whole biblical story that leads up to that. Um, so Israel is a people group. They're stuck in a land called Egypt. If I can get the picture of Egypt up. Yeah. Oh, that's real blurry. <laughs> it looks way better on a computer. So Israel is slaves in Egypt. God raises up this guy named Moses. 
We've all heard of him. And he tells Moses that his job is to set the people of God free. God leads them through the Red Sea, gives them a new home, and he tells them something very important. He tells them they will be a nation that establishes justice and righteousness to the poor. And God starts this new nation by proving that he's a slave liberator. And I want you to... Liberator, and he talks about how since he is a slave liberator, he wants to show the world what it'll look like when an entire nation has the same mindset as God towards the poor and the afflicted. Spoiler alert, it goes really bad. <laughs> like, extremely bad. Um, they go through this time where it basically says that every person did what was righteous in his own eye, meaning there was no laws, there was no enforcement of it. Everyone just did whatever they wanted. And then after that, they eventually start to get kings. And by the third king, things have just spiraled out of control. It was this man named Solomon. In the book of Kings, when it's talking about Solomon, it says that he gathered chariots, spears, horses from every nation that he would travel to, and he would start selling them for a profit. Today, we would call that arms dealing. He was, <laughs> he was going nation to nation, stockpiling as much of the most powerful weapons as he could, and using that as leverage over these other countries to trade with him. And not only that, Kings goes even further into this in saying this is the account of the slaves that built the temple of God for Solomon. So think about this. A new king of a country whose whole history is that every one of them is the descendant of a liberated slave uses slave labor to build the temple to honor the God that freed the slaves. And like, no one really got the irony. Maybe like in the moment it's kind of hard to see, but this was just a terrible idea. Um, and it just, sh so fast forward a little bit, there keeps being all these terrible kings. All of them are kind of taking after Solomon in a way, but all of them kind of highlight different versions of what Solomon did. <coughs> and eventually Israel ends up slaves again in a country called Babylon. So when they were in Babylon, they did what all slave cultures throughout history do. They wrote poems. They sung songs. They did whatever they could to process the trauma that was happening inside of them. But one of the things that they would do, and one of the sayings they had, was they would say, my father, Solomon, ate sour grapes and now our teeth are set on edge. There was so much animosity towards Solomon, so much hurt caused by a forefather, that they refused to say his name. All throughout the writings that happen in Babylon, they never say Solomon. They say the son of David. I know in my life and in so many other people's, when you think about it, when you really hate someone, you stop saying their name. You have some kind of phrase that shows your connection to them. Oh, that's the son of David. Oh, that's my ex-husband. Oh, that's this person that doesn't even deserve to have their name said. And this is how they started to see him. Um, so basically what's happening, to put it into really simple terms, 
There's an entire generation of people that now have been afflicted and they're blaming the last generation for all of their problems. Thank God we've moved past that today, right? <laughs> like, that could never happen anymore. Um, except we, a few of us laughed. I thought it was a great joke, but whatever. Um, <laughs> the reason we're laughing is we know that that isn't true. That's not the way that we deal and process with trauma today. So many people, we all know someone who anytime they have any bad habit, the first thing they want to do is like, well, no, you don't get it. If you knew my father, if you knew my mother, you'd know why I'm like this. My dad was a drunk, abusive, terrible person, so I'm a drunk, abusive, terrible person. My father ate sour grapes, so my teeth are set on edge. It's just the same thing over and over again. And here's the thing. To some extent, it's true. All of our histories that brought us to where we are, they've affected the way we see the world. The way you see the world, the way you see God, the way you see relationships, friendships, all these things are the products of all your life experiences. And the sad part is the majority of those were not decided by you. At the end of the day, especially the most formative ones, were completely out of your control. The only way you get to control it is the steps that you choose to take from this day forward. <coughs> but this means that we need to take a look at those hurts, those traumas, and see why we are the way we are today. And this is where the idea of intergenerational trauma comes from. Um, I'm going to give some examples from my own life, which is not going to be fun, but... So anyone that knows me knows I'm kind of a lighthearted person. I like to make a lot of jokes. And this is not the kind of sermon series where you get to do that. Uh, the joke I made with my wife was like, that's not fair. Drew gets to talk about joy and I get to talk about trauma? Like, what's going on there? <laughs> um, that's just it. So for my life, one of the first ones I've experienced and really I think resonates with anyone at this church just because we if we haven't experienced it personally, this trauma has affected everyone in this room just because we see it coming in here every week. That's the trauma of poverty. Um, poverty is considered the most common intergenerational trauma, and it's one of the ones that has the biggest effects, and we're going to kind of go into that in a little bit. <coughs> I know in my own life, just my parents tried their best to hide it, but did a really terrible job of hiding it. Um, that we were just poor our whole lives. Um, it's kind of awkward when you go to school and you're like, yeah, like, we heat up water on the stove and then we take a shower with it. And it's like, no, you turn on the shower and hot water comes out. <laughs> Didn't really realize that until I was like eight. Um, all these examples, that, all, all these things seem normal, especially in childhood. But then as we start to see that they're not, we start to see how these traumas affected us. And even to this day, anytime money's a thought, there's this stress that comes into my mind with it. Um, again, my parents did their best to hide it. But when you see different utilities getting cut off, when you see the stress that it's caused, when you see your mom working two different jobs, 
it affects you. It hurts you. And it's something that we all can relate to because we've all been influenced by poverty in some way, even if it's not directly. It's our friendships, different family members. Um, I keep going on different traumas, but there's a second one um, that I think really affects more people than we like to admit, and that's going to be the trauma of addiction. Um, both of my parents, for pretty much the majority of my childhood, were active addicts, uh, which doesn't really help with the whole poverty part of it. It definitely influences and definitely has a huge level of correlation. It's kind of like the duck and the egg, which one comes first. Usually they're just coming together. Um, and I know for the longest time, I didn't want to admit that this trauma affected me. Um, because it was a trauma that didn't really happen to me. I've never been an addict. I have a lot of addict mentalities that I learned from my parents, and I guess some people would say those make you an addict when you have the mentalities, but at the end of the day, I've never experienced what they experienced. <coughs> but at the same time, this idea of intergenerational trauma is saying, no, those traumas affected me, your parents' traumas affected you. Um, so I grew up in a neighborhood where basically every kid had the same story. Like, in some way or form, it was the poor side of town. Probably half of my friends' parents were addicts at times. Um, and you would just hear your friends' stories of like, you know, I live with my grandma now because my parents got taken away, or I live with my aunt and uncle, or, oh, he didn't show up to school today. It's like, well, he got... CBS took him. And these... It started to hit me that this trauma affected me more and more than I realized because it instilled this fear of people leaving. Um, the idea that one day I might come home and my parents were gone or dead affected me in a way where now there's always this idea in the back of my head that like, wait, what if this person's gone? What if I don't see this person ever again? And it, it's something I still have to fight with today. Um, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, but these traumas, they affect us, but they're not the final part of it. Um, hit the next slide, please. Sorry. Um, so I want to take a little look at the slide that Elaine used two weeks ago. So these are called uh, the ACEs. So ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood... Someone who's a psychologist say the word. Experiences, thank you. There's three social workers in the room. Come on, people, help me out here. Um, so adverse childhood experiences. And it's kind of hard to read them right now, but it's the idea of physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, um, emotional neglect, mental issues, incarceration, drug addiction, and for those of us that have a lot of intergenerational traumas, we start to see that all these things are connected. It's pretty hard to be affected by drug abuse in your family and not be affected by incarceration, divorce, mental illness, um, lack of funds. All these things are tied together, which is why 
Poverty especially is considered one of the hardest intergenerational traumas to get over. Um, can we bring up the slide with the effects of it? So these effects affect different people in different ways. Um, before getting into this, I just kind of want to explain trauma. Because I never realized this. Trauma has a very standard definition. Trauma is anything that you have experienced that was past your emotional means to cope with. And basically, trauma, no matter how big or how small it might seem to someone else, has affected you. Anything that was traumatic, anything that passed your emotional means caused trauma in you, and it most likely affected one of these behaviors. If you can't notice one of the behaviors, it definitely affected one of the physical or mental health sides of you. <coughs> and one of the issues with intergenerational traumas is the things that bring up the memories of those traumas are always around you. It's one thing if there's a flood, and a flood affected you as a child, you can move away from water. You cannot see that effect. It's real hard to never see your family again. It's real hard to never see poverty again, or to hear about someone being addicted again. All these things that bring you back to the point of trauma. And that's where the dangers of intergenerational trauma comes from, is now people are being affected by it again and again, and it's just this cycle around it. Um, <coughs> so, it's pretty recognized that the physical and mental sides of the effects of trauma, they're considered medically accurate. Everyone kind of agrees on this idea. Um, what's interesting, when we look at the behaviors that are caused by trauma, addiction, which is just a bad coping mechanism, alcoholism, missed work. These are things that when someone copes in that way, we almost villainize them. When the trauma of someone who had a different traumatic experience than us starts to act in ways that we don't think are correct, we have this want to point the finger at them and say, no, get over it, just cope with it. It's like, no, like we're not going to get mad at someone for having heart disease because they had family trauma, or cancer because they have family trauma. We need to teach people how to go cope and go through these steps instead of just saying, act like an adult. Why aren't you being mature about this? All these different sayings that we use, especially ones that are thrown at people who have been affected by poverty and who have to struggle with survival. Um, All this to say, all this sounds like really bad news. But it's a problem that's been kind of being passed down from all of human history. There's always, people have always noticed the idea that, hey, they're so similar to their parents and their behavior. Hey, that person sins just the way their parents did. And it's something that people have been trying to figure out. Um, in Ezekiel's time, they believed that the sin was almost hereditary. That you would inherit it and it would just continue to go down and down and you were stuck in this cycle forever. Until Ezekiel shows up and he gives this really great news. Look at the next verse. He says, Behold, 
all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. Ezekiel is saying that God is for everyone. There isn't a person on earth that God's not rooting for. The mistakes of the Father doesn't doom the children. This was a revolutionary idea at the time. And he expands on it further. It's a really long chapter. I'm just going to kind of give you the basic version of it. He talks about the idea of a righteous father or grandfather who has a wicked son, but then a righteous grandson. And he talks about the idea of like, well, wait, if it's all genetic, which par- who gets what part? Is the grandson righteous because his grandfather was righteous? Is the son wicked because like maybe there was wickedness a few generations up? But God's saying, no, all of these souls are mine. Each one of them gets to decide how they're going to respond to God. Um, but this leaves us in kind of a tough spot. Because for so many of us, the things that cause our traumas, the things that cause the broken pieces inside of us, are our parents, or our direct family, or grandparents. Um, and God isn't telling us to ignore our traumas. He knows our traumas and our pasts are real and how they affect us. He knows them better than you do. Um, but as Christians in particular, we believe that God wants us to honor our parents. God wants us to honor our family. And what does that look like when the people you're supposed to honor are also the ones who have caused our traumas? That's a really tough question. I'm not going to sit here and say I have the, all the answers to it. But I think a big part of the answer comes from that word, honor. Um, honor in the Hebrew is the word kabod. Um, we're going to look at this word for a little bit. Kabod had a lot of meanings. The first one was the idea that kabod means that I acknowledge the weight that something has. Think of, in that time, money was kind of valued by the weight of it. So acknowledging the weight of money meant like I'm going to treat this $100 bill like a $100 bill and not a $1 bill. It was the idea of understanding the weight. Um which is also where we get the idea of like we honor God, we see the weight of what he has to deal with, we see the weight of his decisions. And it goes into our parents too. For some of us, our families might have been the things that caused our trauma, but we acknowledge that weight. We give honor to it. But honor was also the idea of how you represent someone when they're not there. To put it simply, Honoring our families is being able to take an objective look and decide what parts you're going to pass down and what parts end with you. Um, your family history, you get to decide the next steps on it. I put it this way, you honor the past by making sure it doesn't repeat. There's so many things that we can think of that we inherited from our parents and we honor them by saying, I'm going to take the positives. Um, I shared about my parents a little bit ago. I think of it like this. My mother is probably the most generous person I've ever met in my life. Um, 
which is really difficult when you don't have anything. But we would go into the store with exactly enough to buy something, and she would still give money to the person that was asking at the front door. There were times where we didn't know where the next meal would come from, but she would always let someone over if they needed a meal. My mom never let the lack of resources stop her from being generous. I hope that's something I get to pass on. I hope that that's a part of family history. I hope that when someone thinks of, oh, Centennials, those are those like really generous family. But the side of it with living paycheck to paycheck or abusing our bodies with drugs, that part ends. That's never going to be attached to our name again. And a couple generations down, no one's going to think it ever was a part of it. That's how you honor your family. People are going to put a higher value onto your parents, onto your grandparents, when you choose to end these cycles of trauma that keep happening again and again and again. Like, and it's something that we all decide. And it's not only something you can end with you, it's something you can, if it's too late, which it's never really too late, but if you feel like it's too late, there's always the ability to stop it at your children. Um, my, neither one of my parents finished high school. My dad is completely illiterate. Um, and my mom, it was too late for her to go back, but she made sure that every one of us knew how to read very well. Our punishment, we didn't get grounded or spankings. We had to write book reports. <laughs> Which, when you're a really bad kid, you write a lot of book reports. I've read Treasure Island probably four times now. Um, but in that, she honored my dad. She ended that cycle because he came from an uneducated family and they came from an uneducated family and there was no value of that. But she decided that that would end. When we can take an objective look, that's how we end intergenerational trauma. Trauma affects who we are, but it does not define who we are. Um, so here's the thing. We went over the effects of trauma and some of those are physical some of those are things that you're never going to be able to change. If you had trauma in utero especially, you're probably going to have a weaker heart or nervous system or all these different things that can be affected. And yes, we believe Jesus can make all things new, but that's not one you're going to get to change by yourself. Um, but you get to decide the next steps. And it's not easy. <laughs> like... I don't want you to take this as me standing up here and just saying, like, no, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. No. The next steps are hard. They're really difficult. But the first step is always, almost, almost always identifying what those cycles are. For so many of us, the cycles of trauma that have been spreading down our families, we might not even realize it. because it seems normal. It seems like everyone else is wrong. This is the way things have always been. Um, yeah, that's one of the first steps. One of the second steps, which is probably just as hard, 
is finding someone who can hold you accountable for those traumas. Finding someone who can say, hey, I know your family struggles with this, and I know you want to end it, and I'm here to come alongside you. And this takes a ton of vulnerability. It takes a ton of being able to have someone point out your blind spots and you not being offended by it. And it takes a friend who's not going to hold these things over you. Um, Drew, if you can come up. These are just some of the steps. And luckily, there's more good news. These are all great psychology steps. But we here believe that there's a next step to that. Um, we are not a scientific community. We're a faith-based community here. And we've said it that God knows each one of these traumas that's happened to us. God has seen it. God has been there alongside you the whole time. The ultimate solution is bringing these traumas to God. And here, I think so many times we get stuck in our reverence for God that we forget the love God has for us. If in your time with God and dealing with these traumas, if you need to yell at him, if you need to swear, whatever it is, God's a lot bigger. Like, he can handle it, trust me. God's never going to get angry at you. God is not angry, God is loving There's nothing you can say to him, nothing you can tell him that's going to surprise him, nothing that cuts off that love. So another way to talk about trauma is the idea of trauma is our wounds. And we believe Jesus was wounded for us. We can bring our wounds to Jesus and the cycle of wounding ends. So many of us can trace our wounds back to other people and if we're honest with ourselves, so many people can trace their wounds back to us. We live in a world where the cycle of wounding keeps going and we just hurt the next person, not always intentionally. The beauty of Jesus is the idea that that cycle can end. When we bring our wounds to Jesus, our wounds are healed, but his wounds are not made worse. The cycle of wounding ends. And today we're going to take communion together as a family. And I want you to think about that. This wound that Jesus received Yes, it was meant for your soul. It was meant to save you. All these things that we all know. But it was to restore you. It was to take those cycles of trauma, those wounds that seemed like they would go on forever, and it was made to end them. So together as we take communion, bring your wounds. Leave them here at the altar because your wounds will heal but you're not wounding Jesus. He already was wounded for each one of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, that you have been with us through 
our whole lives, that you have brought us through all these traumas. And I just pray, God, that you would bring these traumas to the surface, that we would see that there is healing found only in you, Jesus, and that we would bring you honor by choosing that those cycles would end. God, we thank you that you adopted us in, that we are a new family. And that means we have a new family history. A family history that's completely free of traumas. And there's only good things to pass on to the next generation. Amen. James talked about trauma. And this is a really difficult thing because what we're talking about is giving space for grief and giving space for things that are really uncomfortable and giving space for things that maybe we've spent a very long time working hard not to get in touch with and not to feel. Um, and I'm just reminded of when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And I think about that, and I shared um, several weeks ago about when my brother died. And a point that I got to in my grief process where um, I just didn't trust God. I didn't trust God to be there for me, and I didn't trust God to heal me. And I heard a message, and in that message the pastor said, you know, go and trust and give your grief to God. And so some of this is going to require us to do really, really difficult things. And I think this idea of having somebody there who can walk alongside us and be with us is really important. Um, but more than anything, guys, just trusting that God is a God who loves us, that God is a God who has the power to change our circumstances, to change the trajectory of our lives, to change our families, and to break patterns and break habits and break pains that we continue to carry today. I know that for me as a mom who, who feels like I fail time and time again, that there is hope, that there is blessing, that there is promise, and that God is a God who can do all things. And so no matter how terrifying it is or painful it is, I just want to encourage us all in this time and in this space to trust God that when he says he will bless us in our grief, that he will bless us in our mourning, that he will bless us in our pain, that regardless of what we've done, regardless of the horrible things we've said and, and just the failing that feels like we can never get out of and get past, that God can and God will, and God wants us to live and walk and, and do life in freedom, in his joy, in his grace, and in his mercy. So I just want to pray for us today. Lord, we just thank you for the words that James shared with us. We thank you for um, him opening up and sharing about his own experience and his own trauma. God, I pray that you would help us to be more vulnerable, Lord, that as terrifying as that feels and as much as we don't want to, God, that you would just help us, that you would bring us people who would walk alongside us who we can trust in this journey. 
God, that we would come into your wholeness and your plan for our lives to live this life abundantly, to live it with peace and joy, Lord. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.